And all of God's children said, Amen. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. In a recent sermon, Carson spoke of unexpected and yet powerful encounters with God in our own spiritual lives and the impacts they have on us. In today's familiar Old Testament lesson, we hear of God's call on Moses. Listen now for the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 through 18, as found on page 69 of your pew Bible. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like an devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Friends, please know this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson is from Matthew chapter 17, the first nine verses. And it's the passage of scripture about the transfiguration of Christ. Listen now for God's word. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A fellow pastor talking about how to present this passage of Scripture found an interesting way of doing it in a newsletter article. The suggestion is very unique. 
and I just had images of trying to do that here at Grace Covenant. The suggestion is that the preacher rent a dry ice machine, take a big white sheet and put behind the communion table, get three pictures of Elijah and of Moses and of Jesus that will be projected on that screen, rent a portable sound system at the appropriate time, hear the words of God, and then start the fog machine at the right time. The newsletter went on to give explicit details. As the passage is read, turn off the slides of Moses and Elijah, leaving only Jesus showing. Turn on the fog machine located under the communion table in time for it to thicken up. And then as the sound system starts, these words come, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And finally, don't forget to turn off the fog machine. It's kind of a different kind of image, and I had a, all kind of images in my head about doing that here. Now, I'm not doing it, so don't get too excited about that. But it would look kind of interesting here at Grace Covenant. It would be the sermon that people would never forget I preached, at least for decades if we did something like that. But I think the real reason it wouldn't happen is because the chair of the worship committee would have a stroke about now, and I don't think the treasurer would front me the money to rent the equipment. Now, while this is a novel approach to this passage of Scripture, I think it helps us comprehend how difficult this passage of Scripture is to comprehend. It makes no sense to our Western world minds. And yet, it's the pivotal story in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as he goes from his birth and ministry to the road to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. So what do we make of it? The story of the transfiguration of Christ is always on the last Sunday of Epiphany. And just before Ash Wednesday and just before the beginning of Lent, it really is the definitive declaration that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is who he really says he is, and you need to listen to him. But how do we come to that kind of conclusion from this passage? We're told that Jesus took his first string of disciples up on a high mountain. Doesn't tell us which mountain. James, Peter and James and John. And right there, immediately, Jesus was transfigured in front of these folks, dazzling and as white, and his face shone like the sun. Then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear on this mountain. Peter, getting real nervous about what was happening, starts to blubber all about and says, oh, it's so good to be here. We're glad we made it to this mountaintop. Let me build something. Three booths, one for Moses and one for Jesus and one for Elijah. Then God enters the picture by declaring, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The same words used at the baptism of Jesus. And then it finishes when the disciples are freaked out and falling to the ground, scared to death because they don't know what is going on. And suddenly Jesus is the only person left standing of the three. And after coming down the mountain, Jesus said to the disciples, don't tell anybody about this event 
until I'm raised from the dead. There's only nine verses in this passage of scripture, but they are chocked full of important words and messages for us. But I think the key message is in one word. At the end of verse 5, listen to him. This passage is about listening. Something that's difficult for many of us. It's not a gift that a lot of us have because we'd rather be doing something instead of sitting and listening to someone. It really flies all over me when I go to a fast food restaurant and they go through that little spiel of, is this for here or is this to go? And 95% of the time I say it's for here. And 98% of the time they put it in a bag as if I'm going to go out the door. They ask their question but they don't listen to what you have to say. And many of us are much more eager to do something instead of taking the time to listen. Instead of being still and knowing who God is, we want to stay busy. Yet this story is about you and me listening, inviting us to zip our lips and tune in with our ears. And the reason I think listening is so crucial in this story is because you can make no sense of the story. It's not rational, it's not comprehensible, it's not always understandable. Kind of like God and Jesus. We don't always understand who they are. And every time we think we've got the corner of the market of what God wants to do, God surprises us. Every time we think we know what God's answer is on a particular issue that's facing us, God surprises us and throws us a curveball. God has an incredible sense of humor and uses it all the time to surprise you and me. But God is good. So how is this story to be helpful for us to listen? First of all, as I've said, the transfiguration of Jesus is not explainable, at least to our Western minds. And we're just told in the passage that he was transfigured. That's all it says. Suddenly in front of them he was transfigured, clothes dazzling as white, and his face shining like the sun. And part of that message we will see later is the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. A significant event to make sure you know for sure that he is the anointed one. That he is the son of God without question or equivocation. What happens to you? When Jesus is dazzling white in front of you? What happens to you when you behold Jesus Christ clear as a bell and you no longer have to wonder? What do you do? It happened to me years ago. My first pastorate of two small churches in southwest Georgia, 13 members and 35 members, We'd gotten to three or three and a half years and sometimes preachers get this itch and they don't know why to scratch it and I was wondering what to do. The churches had grown and had had some success in their ministry and I was realizing that I either had to go one church or the other if they really were going to continue to grow, if they were going to continue to, to mature and develop because the churches were 30 miles apart and I just couldn't be in all places at all times. So one day I was meeting with a session of the smaller church, which had grown to 40 members. We were the fastest growing church percentage-wise in the presbytery. We went from 13 to 18 and just blew everybody away of that percentage-wise. 
But I was with the session of the Leesburg Church, and I said, what are we going to do about this? And then it dawned on me. I said, Albany, Georgia, which was the big town, is where the hospital is that both churches used. I said, what happens if, one of, if I go to the Sylvester Church and one of you goes to the hospital? What are you going to do? Miss Lizzie Coxwell, without batting an eye, said, we'll call you. I said, well, what am I supposed to do if I'm no longer your pastor? And it was clear as a bell right then what I had to do. I had to leave both churches. For to go to one and not the other would cause conflict and problems, and it would not be anything helpful to either side. I'm convinced that Miss Lizzie Coxwell was the transfigured Jesus in front of me and helped me realize what God was calling me to do. It was a struggle. It was not quick. I was confused because I loved people in both of those congregations, and they were an eager bunch. But I believe I experienced that transfiguration right then and there. And I got the answer because I listened. And I was able to hear what God was saying to me through Miss Lizzie. Secondly, we see that Moses and Elijah enter the scene and start talking to them. Moses and Elijah represent the leadership of the Jewish tradition. Moses was the greatest lawgiver. Elijah was the greatest prophet. They were the twin towers, if you will, of the Jewish faith. They were what tradition was all about and what the faith stood for. They were at the heart of Jesus' upbringing. And I think part of the reason they're there is because they lent authenticity to Jesus' connection with the Jewish faith. Without any question, they proved that Jesus had the right pedigree. They proved that he had the proper credentials, that he was the right person. But then later, in verse 8, suddenly Elijah and Moses are gone, and the only person remaining is Jesus. A clear declaration, at least to me, that tradition is important, that protocol is necessary, and that having a firm foundation is a requirement. But in the final analysis, all that matters is Jesus. All that matters is the Messiah. All that matters is a clear focus on who Christ is and on nothing else. Not our traditions, not the way we've always done things, not what we think is comfortable, but on Jesus Christ himself. For when we see Jesus clearly, we see God. When we know Jesus, we know God. When we listen to Jesus, we hear God. The story, I think, is telling us that the one and only one to give us clarity about God and about life is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that will point us to God, and he is all that we need. Thirdly, in terms of listening, there comes a twist of events in this story. Poor Peter, up on that mountaintop, with Jesus being transfigured and with Elijah and Moses showing up, he's stymied, and he starts blubbering. 
And he says, oh Lord, it's so good to be here. I'm so glad we're up here on this mountaintop. It feels so good. It is just wonderful. And I've got an idea. I'll build three booths. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now if Peter's not every one of us, I don't know who he is. In many spiritually challenging times, in many times in which God is encountering us, In many times when the Holy of Holies is right next to us, we don't know what to do. Except we want to do something. We want to build something. We want to bake something. We want to take somebody some food. We want to do something so we stay busy. Which when you think about it, it's the very opposite of listening. Of being still. Of taking it in so that God's Spirit kind of envelops us and holds us close. Peter was unhinged because he thought he had to do something. Like Mary and Martha, when Martha was scurrying all around the kitchen trying to be hospitable when she should have been just listening. Is that not our experience? Does it not happen to us when we're around someone who has died and we want to tell them that you're going to be okay or that it's part of God's will or, or, or everything's going to work out when we ought to just stand there and be quiet or maybe just hug those folks for a few minutes. Or when someone starts venting to us about how horrible their relationship is with someone else and they go on and on and on and what we want to do is to give them a solution how to get out of it. And they just want our listening ear. That's all they want. Well, the other one that really gets me is when someone comes to us and they're trying to apologize for something they did against us and they're very sorry for it and we write it off and say, oh, that wasn't anything, that's perfectly okay. We want to fill the airwaves with words. Jesus just was present and we need not fill up everything with our verbiage. The other thing we do that Peter tried to do is to memorialize these spiritual experiences. Peter tried that trick by building three booths so he could bless the location and bless the experience. We do that with our plaques all over the church building everywhere. We want to be able to repeat that mountaintop experience we had at some time, that retreat we went on, and we want to repeat it over and over. But Jesus is not a repeater, repeater God. Jesus does not institutionalize spiritual experiences like you can just play it back like a CD over and over and over again. Jesus is now. God is with us now. It's an experience that builds our faith, not an experience that we are to worship. It's an encounter with the living God, not an idol that we fall down before. It is here and now, and that's who and what Jesus is. Finally, the disciples were scared to death, as I think many of us would be. Just imagine being on that mountaintop. Jesus is transfigured. Here comes Moses and Elijah. God speaks through the clouds, and it's enough to scare anybody to death. They weren't ready for it. They weren't prepared for it, and it happened to them, and we all would be scared as well. But after that initial experience of feardom, what are we scared of? What is it that we're afraid of when we encounter this Jesus Christ? 
I wonder if the real fear is much more about how I might be called to change. How I might be called to change some of my habits. For the God that we worship is a God who challenges us to fulfill the God-called mandates on our lives. Of calling us to consider a change in a career. Of calling us to consider a change in a relationship. Of having a different kind of lifestyle. Or even admitting that I have an addiction that I need to deal with. For many times I think we are afraid of the new me. We know the old me and all our hang-ups and all of our problems. But we're not real sure what this new me is going to look like and whether I'm going to really like it or not. Much less where it might lead me. Much less how life will change for me. And that, I think, is very scary. The story of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ is really a bridge story from his birth and ministry until the road to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. It was a way for him to define clearly for people who he is and what he was about and what his purpose was. And I think this story is the same for you and me. It's mysterious. It's not rational. It's scary. But it is a transition story for you and me from the pew to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Being touched by the master and invited to go up on that mountaintop and behold Christ in our lives. And the challenge is whether we will accept that invitation. Whether we will accept that invitation to meet Jesus Christ and to allow Jesus Christ to have say over our lives and to see what might happen on that mountaintop. To listen to Jesus means to be willing to see what Jesus may be saying to us and to our lives. I invite you to come. Let us pray. Eternal God, we do give you thanks that you've called us and that you're there for us and that you're there in order for us to be about your work. We're oftentimes fearful and scared because we're not sure what to do with these religious experiences. But give us the faith to be able to live with them and to give you praise and glory because of them and to take on a new life Maybe a life far different than what we're used to. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.